Okay, well, let's, let's pray. And thank you guys for coming on time. And um, hopefully we'll have some more. But, um, but let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time now. Lord, we thank you that you are a powerful God beyond our wildest imagination. Lord, if we could grasp the depth of who you are, how, how um, underwhelming that would be. But we can spend an eternity, not, we can spend time now discovering greater and greater depths. But Lord, we'll, we'll spend an eternity and still not conquer the knowledge of God. And so we praise you that you are, the, you are that big. Bless our time this morning. Help it to be a time of great reflection and help it to draw our hearts into praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so let's, let's just very briefly, there's so much that you, you, you just kind of have to plow through. So we're looking at a study in systematic theology. We've looked at the doctrine of the word of God, which is the foundation for everything. Everything we know about God comes from the word. Um, so we spent... Uh, quite a while on the word of God, and now we're in the doctrine of God, the existence of God, the knowability of God, the attributes of God, the Trinity, creation, and providence. Creation is what he's done to create things. Providence is how he interacts and, and how he rules. Um, and today, we, we did providence part one last week, and now we're doing providence part two, and then we'll take two weeks off. And um, it's a challenging topic isn't it? And, and I think we run into problems when we think that we need to just grasp this, and, and we need to know the edges around it, but we can't. This is way beyond us, and it's in particularly challenging because it's so easy to become imbalanced, and there are two extremes here, and one extreme is making God the author of everything, including evil. And that extreme tends to minimize our choices. Our choices don't really matter. We're kind of like robots. It's, it's fatalistic. And, and that's an extreme on one side. But then there's another extreme, and that's taking God out of the equation and making us the author of our own stories and, and, and really leaving us isolated and on our own. So on the one, it leads to despair. On the other, it leads to great pride. But, but there's two extremes. And, and our tendency when we talk about this is to think in terms of two extremes instead of thinking uh, th there's a spectrum on both sides and there's a lot of mystery and we got to be okay with mystery. So people, Christians disagree strongly on this subject of providence and, and here's the good news. It's not a re we, do, we don't have to all agree on this to be Christians. We don't have to all agree on this to be members at, at Grace Christian Fellowship. So last week we looked at more of a Calvinistic approach to this doctrine. And this week we're gonna, we're gonna look at an Arminian approach. And um, again, really easy to, to miss both and, and misunderstand both. So quick review, providence, definition. And this is from Grudem's Systematic Theology, which is 50% off right now. And it's a very expensive book. So if you, if you don't have it, now's the time to get it. Um, providence. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. 
Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. And so that's really preservation. He preserves things in their properties. Um, cooperates, that's concurrence, and that means he works with them. How, why do things do what they do? Well, because it's 100% God, but it's also 100% these, these things that are created in, in that, are, that are being kept by God, but, but they are making responsible actions. And, um, and, and the, the areas for that are inanimate, that's hail, wind, storms, you name it, animals, random events, even the casting of the lots are in one sense dictated by God, and in another sense it depends on the forces and how the dice rolls and what it bumps into. And so it's 100% God, but also 100% according to how these things have been created. Government, is, oh, and, and then national affairs, and then also our own lives. So I'm not going to go into all the scriptures for these, but, um, but there's, there's biblical precedence that God's controlling all of this. Um, government, causing things to accomplish his purpose. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And we will have time for discussion today. And so I'd love to just flesh out how that's, how you've seen that at work in your lives. And um, so there's two extremes. And, and here's the big question. So the two extremes, once again, is making God the author of everything. We're just robots. The other extreme is, no, we are on the throne. And God is just, for, for an atheist, it's just we determine everything. For a Christian, it might be God is watching and seeing how he'll in, relate with what we're deciding. And, and, and those, are, those are extremes. So we don't want to fall in either extreme. Uh, but here's the big question. Do things turn out the way they do because of me or because of God? Why is life as it is? Every detail of your life, is it because of you or is it because of God? Or is it somehow that they cooperate together? And um, so that's, that's really what we're looking at. Calvinism, the, the one extreme that says God does everything. Well, it's not an extreme. I, I am a Calvinist, although that has to be so carefully qualified because when people hear Calvinist, they might think a hundred different things. And so, but within the Calvinist group, there is this belief that God is sovereign. And we're not talking about salvation right now. That's a later chapter. We'll get to that. But just in how he works in creation. So, but within that group, there, there are people on the far extreme that are sometimes called the frozen chosen. And they almost have a fatalistic view of how God operates. So we, we, we want to avoid that at all costs. But what, what we talked about last week is that God plans and God directs. There's a primary cause for everything, even the casting of lots, and that's God. God is the primary cause. But there's a secondary cause as well. And, you know, we really do cause things to happen. I mean, isn't that, it's kind of confusing. Who causes? God does. Yes, 100%. 
but, but he has chosen a world in which we cause things to happen. But it's, it's a secondary cause. God is the primary cause. But we have real choices, and our real choices bring about real events. And so we don't want to minimize that. And, and you can do that on the, in this camp. You can minimize that. Or you can maximize it if you're over here and say, it's all about me. And, and, we, and we don't want to do either one. But, but let's, let's talk about Armenianism. So now Armenia is a country, Armenia with an E, is a country um, in, in Western Asia, east of Turkey. They gained independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. And I had a friend in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church when I, when I used to attend who was an Armenian Calvinist. And so he's from Armenia, but he was Calvinistic. And, and so we don't want to get confused there. Yeah. Really? So Curtis could, without knowing it, be an Armenian Calvinist. Yeah. So, um, so let's, let's think a little bit about, and here's the two camps, John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius. Jacobus was four years old when John Calvin died, and, and he had some problems with some of the teachings, so he came out with a, an alternative way to view some of these scriptures, and so on and so forth. Now, Clark Pinnock gives us a case for Arminianism. And he says this, in order to preserve the real, and, and this is not just a case for Arminianism with regard to all that they teach, but a case for Arminianism with regard to the subject at hand, which is providence. And so he says, in order to preserve the real human freedom and real human choices that are necessary for genuine human personhood, God cannot cause or plan our voluntary choices. So does someone, someone just take that and put it in your own words? Not do you agree with it or not, but just what is he trying to say here? Just put it in your own words. Yeah, go ahead, Luke. Yeah. So in other words, in his mind, what he's saying is that's a necessary condition for humanhood, like the number one a priori condition, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so he, he wouldn't deny that God is powerful, God is active, God is working, but when you get back to the root, root, root cause, he'd have a hard time putting God as the primary cause and us as the secondary. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and this plays a, a particular role when it comes to salvation, what he's saying here as well. And so, but let's, let's go in, and he's going he's gonna to give us several areas to explore and why. And let me, actually, let, let me read a little bit more. 
God's providential involvement or control of history must not include every specific detail of every event that happens. But God instead simply responds to human choices and actions as they come and does so in such a way that his purposes are ultimately accomplished in the world. So he's saying God is going to accomplish his purposes, but he does it through responding to what the, the, the distinct decisions that we're making. And, um, and he says God's purposes in the world are more general and could be accomplished through many different kinds of specific events. And so he, he's got a big view of God. He's saying, you know, I mean, can you imagine a God who's working so powerfully that he's going to bring about his purposes, but he's going to do it without any say in the decisions we make? I mean, that's complicated in and of itself right there. Um, so God's dynamic or God's plan for the world is not a blueprint encompassing all future contingencies. So in other words, it's not set in stone. It's not written in a book. And, but a dynamic program for the world, the outworking of which depends on us. So in a sense, God is counting on us to make the decisions we make. And, but it's general enough that regardless of every decision I make, it's okay. It's not going to thwart his plans because there are other people who will be making decisions, so on and so forth. And so, I mean, I, I almost think that takes more faith to, to comprehend and believe than just a simple, wow, God is the author. Yeah. Yeah. So even someone who makes a stupid, who just didn't listen to the sense of somebody else, is God. Just yeah. Because it was of God. And he keeps saying that throughout the whole section of the kings. Yeah. So here's this king. God decided this. He makes a decision, and you think it's all him. But there's a God behind it who has dictated from eternity past. So now, now could that king turn around and say, well, it's not my fault. You know, I, you know God determined. That, what else could I do? You, you can't because he made a willing choice from his own desires. He did exactly what he wanted to do. But it wasn't independent of God. And, and so there's, there's really four main areas that they are concerned about. And, and they would say, and, and here's what Howard Marshall said. He said, God makes things happen according to his will by responding to and utilizing the free choices of human beings, whatever they may be. It's kind of like a jazz band. You know, there's, there's a lot of improvision and there's a lot of things happening, but there's a conductor, and, and sometimes if you've watched a jazz concert, if they're really good, the conductor sometimes, he doesn't even know where they're going, but he does know big picture, and there is a plan and there's a direction. Yeah. Okay, it's, it gets complicated, because what about prayer? If God has any influence in our lives, then how do you say that God's not in control? And if God can interrupt human decision and human choices, 
then what you're saying is there's a sovereignty there that God can, God can dictate. But, but as soon as you open that door, so do Armenians not pray? No, they pray. They pray. And they, they would criticize Calvinists for praying. Why would you pray? Because God, and, and there's an answer on both sides, but I, I think the, the, the sovereignty of God is answered more clearly in why we pray. God determines, and he's determined, it's all written down, but, but he hasn't determined to do that apart from our willing choices. So we get to be part of what God is doing. And when we pray, we are changing things very, in a very real way, but it, it wasn't outside of, God's not surprised. God's not saying, okay, well, I'm going to do something different now. So, so yes, the Holy Spirit actively opens our eyes, changes our hearts, and we'll talk about more, more about that when we talk about salvation. Yeah, Curtis. So let's, let's keep going, and we'll get, we will discuss that. And, and so the fact is, there are verses in the Bible that present God as an all-powerful God who is doing exactly what he wants, period. And there are verses in the Bible where he's pleading with us to, to pray or pleading with us to, to choose, choose this day whom you will serve. And, and so what do we do with it? We either, there, there are people, and, and I think this falls in the Arminian camp a lot, but I think Calvinists on the extreme side do this as well. Say, well, they're both there, so I'm going to choose to believe these ones, and, and I'm just going to not think about those ones. We can't do that. We have to say, all of Scripture is true, so there's got to be a way this fits together, and that goes into our doctrine of the Word of God. They've all got to be true, and we don't want to go so far over here that we make ourselves robots, We've got to look at those verses and say, God is pleading with us. We, we have to look at these verses and say, God desires that everyone be saved. That's a true statement. And so we have to wrestle with some, some tension. And, but, but I think we can do that, and I think we can do it safely without putting God in a box and to still have him be bigger than our imagination. So let's, let's go on. So what the, what the, um, the Arminians when they look at some of these verses that describe the providence of God and the control of God, one of their responses is this. The verses cited as examples of God's providential control are exceptions and not how God ordinarily works. So there's two ways you can view that. One is, I'm not even going to go to those verses, and I'm just going to... I mean, I, I was talking to a guy once, and he just said, Romans 9, I just choose to not believe it because of all these other verses. Well... They, they wouldn't necessarily do that. A responsible 
Arminian would say, yes, those verses are there, but that's not how God works in every circumstance. That's how God uniquely works in, in some situations. Does it make sense? So I appreciate that. I can handle that because they, they are saying the word of God is true. And, and they're saying everything in there is true. Um, Jack Cart Cartrell, or Cottrell and Clark Pinnock, they wrote this. These verses are examples of God's providential control, are exceptions, and do not describe the way in which God ordinarily works in human activity. Cottrell agrees that in some cases, God intervenes in the world in an uncommon way. So this would be uncommon. God controlling the hearts of a king, etc., etc. That's uncommon. And he would say, using subtle, I, I don't think it's so subtle. When you read some of these verses, it's not subtle. But you, and that was last week, using subtle manipulation of such natural laws and of mental states. And then quote, it is natural that the Old Testament teems with accounts of special providence. So he would call these verses special providence. God moving in various ways. And, and he says it's, that's natural. But we have no reason to assume that God was working in Australia and South America in such ways at the same time. You see what he's saying? He's saying, okay, yeah, God might have been working in Moses at that time, but not in Antarctica. Or, or we, we have no reason to assume that in South America he's doing the same thing, working in individuals in the same way. Um, Moses was part of the biblical storyline. Um, the, there's, a, there's a problem with that, is that the the Bible itself doesn't give us that leeway. The Bible never in any way suggests that this is a unique and uncommon way God moves. It describes it as here is our God. This is, this is who he is and what he does. But, but it doesn't give us room to open the door. I mean, for example, Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight: 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Is that a unique thing that he's doing, but he's not doing it in Asia where there also is a kingdom? I don't think so. Um, or how about this? Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Is, are we just talking about Hezekiah here? Or are we talking about any king and every king? They would say, we to preserve human choice, we have to understand that as speaking about specific examples where God is trying to bring about specific results, but it's not how he works regularly. Make sense? And, and I would just say, as we go through these verses, we, and, and we're not going to go through all of them, we're not going to go through hardly any of them today, um, but we, we just, we can't limit God to that because he doesn't limit himself. God is the primary cause. We are the secondary cause, a necessary secondary cause. So, number one, those are exceptions and not how God ordinarily works. Number two, the Calvinist view wrongly, here we go, number two, the Calvinist view wrongly makes God responsible for sin. Now, th this is a powerful argument, right? Put that in your own words. What, what, is, he, what is he saying? The Calvinist view wrongly makes God responsible for sin. Put that in your own words. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in other words, 
God is, has providential control over all things as the primary cause of all things. So if, if, there's, if, if that's true, and if there's evil in the world, then that makes God, what they're saying, the author of evil. And God cannot be the author of evil, right? We would all agree with that. God cannot be responsible, in one sense, for evil. And so they're concerned about the holiness of God, and that's a good concern. Again, you can be in a spectrum here, and if you're on this side, I don't even think you're a Christian, but if you're on this side, you're trying to understand these verses and say, look, I, you know, I just think we have to give more priority to, to our conscious decisions. And, and that, that's not necessarily an unbiblical, I, I disagree with it, but you can make some arguments there. But does the, the Calvinistic view of God's providence make God responsible for sin? If God indeed caused, through his providential activity, everything that comes about in the world, then the question arises, what is the relationship between God and the evil world? Good question. Necessary question. How can God be holy if he decrees sin? Is not the author of sin? Is, is, yeah, he's not the author of sin, and he can't be tempted and tempts no one. He is righteous, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So can you picture God, the God of the Bible, tempting people or deciding that he wants evil to take place? You, you just, you, ha you have to wrestle. What are the implications? Okay, but, but let's, let's step back. Question. What are the implications if God does not decrease sin, and, ha and yet it occurs nonetheless? What are the implications? What if sin was not ever part of God's plan at all, he had, and he's simply responding to it now? What are the implications of that? Yes, yeah. 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 Oh, let me repeat those. So, so it diminishes the authority of God. You mean, you mean this just kind of crept up and he had no idea it was coming? It, it diminishes the work of Christ. What Christ did on the cross is no longer foreknown before the foundation of the world, but it becomes a plan B escape plan that God is responding to this. Yeah. They don't. Yeah, yeah. 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 You run into a dualism. And evil has always been there. It's outside of God's control. And if it's outside of God's control, that has freakish ramifications. What about heaven? Is it possible that, unbeknownst to God, it'll creep into heaven? Um, how, how do we know that God can, can ultimately conquer it? And um, so, so let's just say these guys are saying, look, we don't want to reproach God. We don't want to blame God for sin that's occurring. I admire that. But what the Bible seems to say 
I mean, there are dozens and dozens of passages that speak, of that, that say very clearly that God indirectly brought about some kind of evil, but it's always done by people or demons, this is Grudem, who choose to do it. They, have, they make willing choices according to their nature. None of our choices are uninfluenced, right? I think we all have to say that. No matter how far you are here or here, every one of us makes decisions that are influenced by how we were raised, what culture we're in, you know, so on and so forth. So we are influenced. And, um, but somehow, and this is what Scripture says, God is determining, dictating, planning, but we are carrying things out very willingly and, and in lockstep with our own desires, and we are to be blamed for the wrong choices we make. We make them into our. Yeah. Yeah. So, so our tendency is to make God into our image, absolutely, and that's what that's. I mean, that's left to ourselves. If we didn't have the Bible, God would not look like He does in Sunday school this morning. Um, so that's our tendency, to make them in our own image. And so when we look at that, we think, okay, well, I understand that a crime boss or a mob boss was not involved in this murder, but he's guilty because his agents carried out the murder. Now, and that's true. He is guilty. He's a criminal because he did that. And so then we turn, folks in the Armenian camp turn and say, well, then how can we say that God, even though he didn't carry it out, he uses agents how can we say that he, well, he's not man. He's not like us. And the scripture says that God is at work in such a way that he brings about even, even sinful things that happen, but we are responsible because we made the decisions to do it. So we're not robots, but God is in control. You gotta, you gotta just be okay with, with some, some wrestling here. Yeah, Luke. Scary. So, so ultimately, you're, you're either going to exalt God or you're going to exalt man. It really comes down to that. And when you get on the Arminian side, if you're on this end of the spectrum, it's scary because you're suddenly putting yourself in the God seat. And, but, but to be fair, most people in the Arminian camp who are really trusting in Jesus are not over on that extreme. But you can see how it lends itself toward that. Um, so let's keep going. Joseph. Joseph's brothers were jealous. They were jealous. They hated Joseph. Joseph made some bad decisions as a kid, and he was showing off, and, and so he, he was sinful. They were sinful. They hated him in Genesis 37. They wanted to kill him in Genesis 37. They did wrong when they cast him into the pit. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And they sold him into slavery into Egypt. Okay? They did that. Who did that? They did that. They're responsible. But Joseph, when he talked to his brothers, we all know this. 
He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. How did God send him? It was God's plan. He used their sinful to bring about such incredible good. God is not responsible for that evil, but he uses every evil thing that happens in the world to bring about good. Um, and then he said again, you meant evil against me. You're guilty. You meant evil against me. But God, primary, meant it for good to bring, about, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Job, though the Lord gave Satan permission to harm Job's everything, Job's possessions, his children, everything but his wife, the, the one person that probably would have been helpful to be gone because she was giving him really bad advice, curse God and die. And, and so, um, so Satan did all of this, but if you look at how he did it, it was the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, and it was a windstorm. And God has planned, he's allowed all of that to happen, but then Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now the Bible could have then said, wait a minute, Job, you got that a little bit wrong. But it says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job just blamed God for everything that happened, that the Chaldeans did, that, that ultimately Satan did. Um, Job said, you did it, God. And the Bible affirms that that was right. He did not sin. Now, was God a primary agent? Yes. Is he like a mob boss? No. God is perfectly holy, perfectly good. Can we understand that? Well, not if he was one, like one of us, but just greater. But somehow in God's economy, he's made things that way. Jonah. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Jonah, in his prayer, says, you cast me, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. He says that to God. Saul, King Saul, remember, he took his own sword and fell on it. Who decided to do that? Saul. But later, in the same, just 10 verses later, it, it says, Saul did not seek guidance from the Lord, therefore the Lord put him to death. Who put him to death? Did Saul commit suicide? And is he guilty for all the decisions he made leading up to suicide? Absolutely. But who put him to death? The Lord did. And, and so we just, we just have to wrestle with this. Jesus, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Definite plan. He's like, I don't even want you to question who's responsible here. It was the definite plan of God. That's such a precise word, an all-encompassing word. He was delivered up according to the definite plan of God and foreknowledge of God. You crucified by the hands of lawless men. And then in, in Acts 4, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Was this a unique circumstance, or is this how God works always? I think we have to say this is how God works always. Is there some mystery? Absolutely. Um, and so, there, so the Arminian's concern is, number one, that these verses are true, but they're exceptions. Number two, the, the, the Calvinist view wrongly makes God responsible for sin. No, they're not exceptions, and somehow he is not, absolutely not responsible for sin. We are. 
And then number three, choices caused by God cannot be real choice, cannot be a real choice. That's just an emphatic statement. Hey, if it's a choice, and if God is a primary cause, we can't call that a real choice. And the, the, the answer is, who says? Who says? Who says that choices that we make that have God governing behind the scenes are not real? Well, we can say that all we want, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says those are real choices, but God is the cause. Pinnock says this, human freedom is the precondition of moral and intellectual responsibility. That makes sense. But what is human freedom? How do we define human freedom? Is that a freedom to choose without any influence from God? It seems at times that that's what the Armenians are looking for. And we have to say emphatically that that is not the case. We do not make decisions uninfluenced by God. Praise God. Can you imagine someone dead in sin? How about a whole society? How about the whole world dead in sin, free to make choices independent of God? Where would we be today? And so praise God that isn't the case. But you understand what they're saying. They're saying, but wait a minute. We, if, if they're, they're looking at this end of the Calvinist spectrum and saying, well, then you're just a robot. And it just isn't the case. Um, so moving on, why did the fall occur? Man, why did Adam and Eve, living in a perfect garden, perfect location, perfect relationship, perfect jobs, perfect everything, why did they fall? If God was there hoping above all that they wouldn't fall and, and scrambling on the other end of that to come up with a plan B, which is Jesus, then we're in trouble. But God was planning. He was the architect even before he created Adam and Eve that this is going to happen and it's going to be beautiful. The end result is going to showcase the glory of God in a way that had sin never entered the world, it never would have. For, for one, we see the justice of God. We see the mercy. The justice and mercy in full display never understood before the fall. There was no sin. There was no forgiveness. There was no mercy. There was, the depth of love was completely, unender, completely lacking. How do you understand the depth of love unless you have someone going down and being willing to take the eternal punishment in our place? That describes a depth that... So in other words, God allowed, planned, working through secondary causes, our very willing choices, planned for something that would put his glory on display in a way that nothing else would. Now, can we put that in a box and say, here it is, and here's the edges? We, we can't do it. We can't do it. We just have to say, wow, God is, God is really, really big. There's, there's a, and, and, but what would the Armenians say? They would say, well, the fall occurred, quote, because God refuses to mechanize man or to force his will upon him. And, and I understand the impulse and the desire but I'm thankful that God imposes his will on us. And I'm thankful that God has a plan. And, and it's bigger than... Now, they, they would also say, um, 
oh, it, it, there's an irony here. They do not want God to force his will upon people, but are willing to allow some kinds of influence by God on human beings, right? You've got prayer and you've got um, so on. Prayer, and this is what they say, prayer also influences men. The wills of men can thus be affected by prayer or else we would not pray for them. To believe in prayer is thus to believe in some kind of limitation on human freedom. That's a fair statement. They're saying, yeah, well, yeah, there's some kind of limitation to human freedom, and that's why we pray. And in some kind of incomprehensible influence on the wills of man. So they struggle with that. I, I can't understand that, but we'll still pray. Whereas we struggle with, we can't understand how God cannot be the agent of sin and be guilty, but we're just going to trust him and, and who he is and what he does. Um, to drive home their point of human freedom, advocates of the Armenian position draw attention to the frequency of the free offer of the gospel in the New Testament. Man, we don't want to minimize that. The free offer, it goes out page after page. Please believe, believe, believe. And we'll talk about that more a few chapters later. Um, but even in, in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But just before that, it says, you couldn't come to me unless the Father opened your eyes. And so even those verses come in a context of God's overall power and sovereignty. And um, so lastly, um, the Arminian view encourages responsible Christian living. So they would say, hey, man, if we believe our decisions are the ultimate cause and God is responding to our decisions, then we're going to want to make good decisions. And I would just have to say, responsible Arminians, yes, they are driven to make good decisions. I don't think they have the peace that not a Calvinist over here, but a, but a responsible Calvinist has, knowing that God is good and that God is planned and, and God is working. But, but both believe very strongly that our opinions, our, our decisions, what we do matter, absolutely. Um, God is working through. He's already planned, but... But we get to be part of what he's doing. Um, so so that's, just, that's just not true. That regardless, you're going to be evangelistic. You're going to be um, insistent on seeking to do what's right. And you're going to be taking full responsibility for the sins that you choose. Whether you're on this side of the, of the a responsible Calvinist or a responsible Arminian. So we really do have more in common than we realize. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it might be. There might be things that we did do wrong, but at the end of the day, we're not on the throne. And, oh, praise God that, that I can just rest and say, wow, God has plans that are beyond my wildest imagination, and, and something's happening. There's not just one thing God is doing. He's doing a million things, and you can't possibly see the extent of the, the trickle effect. The, two questions, and we'll end here. Um, 
what would be the implication? What would the implication be if God was not in control? I'll just say scary. We'll move on. We won't discuss that. Um, how does this doctrine comfort you and stories from your own life? So let's just take a minute and, and maybe just think specifically of how this brings comfort to you and, and maybe stories of your own life. Have to pick and choose. Amen. And we, we have to say that some of it we don't understand, and we just have to say, yeah. Any, anybody else? Yeah, Dave. Changed. Yeah. Oh, and, and the implications here within these viewpoints of, of salvation and conversion are profound. Um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, who gets credit? Me or God? Am I really going to love an unbeliever? Am I going to think it was my fault? Well, it might be, and you need to work on your gospel presentation, but it's the gospel that's the power of God, and, and we don't have to freak out. Man, I better get it right this time, or they might be forever hardened. We, we just at ease talk about the Lord and how good he is and tell people what he's done on the cross, and, and the pressure's off. That's, that's God's work, um, and so on and so on. But that, more on that another week. Any any others? Yeah, Katie. Yeah. Everything we 
You felt the burden. See, it's going to be perfect. It's going to work out so well. And, and because otherwise, I mean, there are Armenians, responsible Armenians, who would say, yeah, God, God's going to work, but you, you can't know for sure that it's going to end up beautiful and perfect and the best. But, but we know that all things work to the counsel of his will, and what is his will? All things work out together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Yeah. One really does emphasize responsibility, responsibility, responsibility. And, and again, not everybody lives consistently on either side. But, um, but over, over here, we look at these verses and we just say, trust, trust, trust. And yes, it's going to affect how I behave. And, and my guess is that nobody's changed their mind here this morning. But isn't it good to just meditate on, on these realities? Don't we need to meditate on this? That, man, when things are going crazy, to just know there is a good God. So what do we ultimately do? Not scramble to make things happen, although there might be things that we need to do, but to rest and to press into the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and to trust. And um, Yeah, Jim. All things are from him and to him and through him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you can always lose your salvation in the end, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's end with this verse. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him 
who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And let's end with this, because this is what we can miss sometimes on this side. He is working all things to the counsel of his will, but when you look at the Bible and the encouragement to pray and you will receive, God will give you. Just, just reading through John 14 to 16, right before Jesus' prayer, it's like seven times, six or seven times that he's saying, pray, pray what you desire and it will be given to you. So what do we do here? Here's what I do with this, and I think we should all do this. We should just say, wow, isn't it incredible that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, and he allows us to jump right in the middle of that and be part of what he's doing. Part of his divine working determined before creation. We can be part of that. We can be part of the massive changes that occur. We're, we're part of that through our prayers, through our activities, through the decisions we make, through, to, through saying no to sin, so on and so forth. He's allowing us a, front seat, a place in the front seat. And how that all works, I don't know, but God has not decreed that he would do all these things apart from us. He's decreed that he would do everything according to the counsel of his will through us. And it's incredible. What, what else is more um, empowering, more um, glorious than being created in God's image and, and given a front door seat in, what, in his workings in the world? Um, it's incredible. So let's not minimize that. We do not want to be, think of ourselves in terms of as robots, fatalistic. That is evil. And so is this. I'm on the throne. And so God help us to just say, wow, Lord, I'm going to pray even more this week, trusting that you will work through my prayers and bring about your divine purposes. And so let's pray now, and um, let's take a minute and go ahead and, and jump in.